Okay, so uh, we, we're, we actually... You <laughs> <laughs> keep going. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. I'm Zara Morali, and it's time for another Ask a Fellow episode. This week, we get to showcase GIM, and I'm delighted to host our podcast today with Dr. Amanda Wynn and Dr. Jessica Wynn. I'll let you guys introduce yourselves. Hey guys, so I'm uh, Jessica, and um, I'm, I'm Amanda. We both uh, did our training together, actually, um, throughout med school and our internal medicine residency, as well as our fellowship. So we both did our medical school in Toronto, and then we did our core internal medicine residency at McMaster, and I went on to complete my GIM fellowship here at McMaster as well for another two years, and Amanda actually went and did her OB medicine fellowship. Yeah, which I did a portion of it in Vancouver and will complete in Toronto as well. I don't know if we mentioned that you guys are sisters also. (laughs) Maybe that's clear. So on our episode today, we'll be talking about uh, VTE in pregnancy. VTE stands for venous thromboembolism, uh, so that's when a blood clot forms in the venous system. It typically occurs in the deep veins of the legs. This is called a deep vein thrombosis, or a DVT. Untreated DVTs carry a significant risk of throwing off emboli that can lodge in the lungs. This is called a pulmonary embolism, or a PE. Amanda will start us off with a case. Sounds good. So here we present a case of a 29-year-old primiparous female, G1P0, currently at 20 weeks gestational age. She presents with unilateral swelling in her left leg and associated left calf cramping for the last week. She reports mild shortness of breath that's been progressive during pregnancy, but noticeably worse two days ago. She's otherwise healthy and reports no previous family history of VTE or miscarriages. Her obstetrical history remains unremarkable. She has no previous miscarriages or abortions herself. Her only medications include prenatal vitamins and iron supplements. She denies any smoking, alcohol, and IV drug use. She works full-time as an administrative assistant. She denies any recent travels, immobilization, or surgery. And she presents to the LND triage with vital signs as follows. So her pulse was 110, sinus tachy, blood pressure 104 over 76, temperature 36.5, and respirate 20, citing 93% on room air. She appears well and in no apparent distress. Cardiovascular and respiratory exams are unremarkable apart from her tachypnea. Her left leg is more swollen than her right with pitting edema bilaterally. So as we work through the case, we will be going through five categories to help you organize your thoughts. We will be discussing incidence and pathophysiology, number two, risk factors, and number three, differential diagnosis. Making the diagnosis and workup, and as well as uh, treatment and length of therapy. I want you guys to think about these five categories and test yourself at the end of the episodes. The big guidelines to refer refer to here are the SOGC, the ASH guidelines, Thrombosis Canada, and the NICE guidelines. Uh, So Thrombosis Canada is Canadian, Uh, NICE guidelines are European, ASH guidelines are American, and SOGC is Canadian, is that right? Yeah, that's right. All right, so let's start off with incidence and pathophysiology. Uh, what is actually a patient's risk of developing a venous thromboembolism in pregnancy? Is this something that uh, all uh, obstetric patients should worry about? Is it very common? I would say that overall, the prevalence of VTE in pregnancy is quite low, actually. The overall incidence of DVT and PE is 12.1 per 10,000 and 5.4 per 10,000 pregnancies, respectively. 
However, compared to the general non-pregnant population, the risk of VTE in the antepartum period is about five to 10 times higher. And this risk extends to at least six weeks postpartum at 15 to 35 times the risk. Significant maternal and fetal mortality and morbidity can result from VTE. So it's very important to recognize the signs and symptoms in order to make a prompt diagnosis. PE is the seventh leading cause of maternal mortality and accounts for 9% of maternal deaths. And additionally, DVT also occurs more commonly in the left leg, about 80% more often due to the vasco-anatomy. The compression of the left common iliac vein by the common iliac artery is accentuated by the enlarging uterus. It is also very important to note that most DVTs, about 70% of them, were restricted to the proximal veins without involvement of the calf veins. So even if you do a Doppler ultrasound of the legs and can't find a clot, it doesn't mean the patient doesn't have one. Remember to scan the proximal veins, especially in the pelvic region. Okay, so I'm thinking, I'm remembering there's this triangle for med school. There are three factors that contribute to thrombosis, uh, stasis of blood flow, endothelial injury, and hypercoagulability. This is called Virchow's triad. Uh, but is this such a concern in pregnancy? Is this pertinent to the obstetric patient? Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, there are significant hormonal changes during pregnancy as well uh, on top of the Virchow's triad. So notably, there's an increase in estrogen. This contributes to an increased hypercoagulable state in pregnancy. The additional enlarging veins and compression from the uterus can also affect blood flow. Okay guys, let's recap our first category here, which is pathophysiology and incidence. We heard from Amanda that the risk of VTE in pregnancy is overall quite low but certainly higher than in non-pregnant populations because of hormonal changes and venous compression and engorgement. The risk extends from pregnancy to six weeks postpartum. PE is the seventh leading cause of maternal mortality worldwide, contributing to 9% of maternal deaths. Excellent, so that's why it's so important to be aware of the signs and symptoms of VTE. It's not a diagnosis that we would want to miss. Um, so let's talk about our second category, risk factors. I understand that high levels of estrogen increase a patient's chance of getting a VTE, but what are th some other risks in pregnancy? Well, typically when you think of any pregnancy-related condition, you would frame it as non-pregnancy-related and pregnancy-related factors. Of course, we would include the typical non-pregnancy-related risk factors for VTE, which include traveling, immobilization, procedures or surgeries, previous clots, and family history, etc. But a few of our pregnancy-specific risk factors for VETE in the antepartum period include increased age and BMI, history of APLA and hypercoagulable diseases, varicose veins and previous thrombophlebitis, previous VTE, particularly in the pregnancy period as well. And in addition to the antepartum risk factors, there are separate postpartum risk factors as well. These include postpartum hemorrhage, bed rest in the antepartum period, history of C-section, postpartum infections such as endometritis, and preeclampsia or other hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. And let me take it back to our case. Um, here it appears that our patient doesn't have any other risk factors apart from the pregnancy itself, but the important takeaway here is that we shouldn't really forget our non-pregnancy related risk factors because they also apply. Excellent. So time to talk about differential diagnoses. Um, I would think that leg swelling and shortness of breath is very common in pregnancy. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I guess we should think about other diagnoses too. Yeah, totally. So you've taken us to our third category here, which is differential diagnosis. 
And I'll remind everyone again that we should be thinking of pregnancy-related and non-pregnancy-related conditions. Amanda, do you want to start with the pregnancy-related conditions? Sure, yeah. So recall that pregnancy, in pregnancy, there are many physiological changes that occur, and it's important to be familiar with them in order to understand what is normal and not normal in pregnancy. What's normal in pregnancy includes increasing blood volume during first trimester that can reach up to 40 to 50% above baseline. Oxygen demand increases as well due to the increased metabolic rate and oxygen consumption in pregnancy. The diaphragm is elevated and the ribs spread apart, leading to decreased functional residual capacity. Pregnant women have increased resting minute ventilation due to a larger tidal volume, not respiratory rate, due to the effects of progesterone. So about 60 to 70% of women experience a sensation of dyspnea during pregnancy, usually noticeable in the first or second trimester. This is called physiological dyspnea of pregnancy and is simply a result of increased awareness of the physiological hyperventilation of pregnancy. However, when dyspnea is acute, there are some important diagnoses to think of. P is of course part of the differential, but is usually accompanied by hypoxia, pleuritic chest pain, and tachycardia. Peripartum cardiomyopathy typically occurs late in pregnancy, for example in third trimester, and can actually present more gradually. So if a patient has a previous history of peripartum cardiomyopathy, this needs to be strongly considered. Severe preeclampsia and eclampsia is another differential, and GERD uh, related to a growing, growing uterus as well. And for our non-pregnancy-related conditions, we should be thinking about um, typical things like upper airway obstruction or anaphylaxis, asthma, pneumonia, or upper respiratory tract infections, a pneumothorax or rib fractures is part of the diagnosis here, as well as anemia. And remember, mild anemia is actually pretty common in pregnancy because of increased blood volume overall. And then we should not forget about other cardiac diagnoses such as arrhythmia, valvulopathies, and acute coronary syndromes, etc. Thanks for that, guys. Um, so what's our differential for leg swelling? Well, Zara, like you've previously mentioned, leg swelling is common in pregnancy as well. This is usually mild and bilateral. Patients may feel slight dyspnea pregnancy as well, but if there is moderate or severe dyspnea or unilateral swelling in their legs, they should be referred for prompt evaluation. Our pregnancy-related differential for leg swelling includes peripartum cardiomyopathy, preeclampsia or eclampsia, and of course, DVT. All right, so I'll recap our third category here of differential diagnosis. I can't reiterate enough, but we should always remember to think about pregnancy and non-pregnancy-related conditions. For pregnancy-related, we talked about physiologic dyspnea of pregnancy, PE slash DVT, peripartum cardiomyopathy, severe preeclampsia or eclampsia, and GERD. For non-pregnancy-related conditions, we should think about all other causes of shortness of breath, whether it's infectious, obstructive airway disease, anaphylaxis, anemia, and other cardiac causes, including ACS, arrhythmias, and valvulopathy. Now our fourth category, making the diagnosis, is up next. But before we get into that, this is just a quick reminder that every patient should be assessed for stability, first with ABCs, IV, O2, and monitors. Additionally, the baby should also undergo fetal heart monitoring and assessment by the obstetrics team. 
I also just want to highlight here that our patient has a saturation of 93% on room air. So in my normal elderly internal medicine patient, I wouldn't be too alarmed at this saturation, um, but our mindset should definitely shift for the obstetric patient. Yeah, I totally agree. Any saturations that are less than perfect for a young, healthy female patient should definitely raise red flags, even if it's above 90%. So you're totally right here. I would be concerned about this 93% saturation on room air. Okay, uh, so once we've determined stability, I think we should start with our basic workup, including CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, and troponins, a chest x-ray, an ECG, um, and I'd probably add some investigations for a preeclampsia panel. So that includes urinalysis or urine PCR, along with um, a 24-hour urine protein, liver enzymes, and LDH. We may want to consider spirometry or an echocardiogram if we are thinking of other diagnoses in our differential. A BNP is helpful if we are considering cardiomyopathy. And if we are ordering a VBG, remember that a mild respiratory alkalosis is common in pregnancy. Okay, so I just had a question. We discussed uh, BNP in the context of diagnosing uh, or helpful with the diagnosis of peripartum cardiomyopathy. Uh, does the threshold of BNP in obstetric patients change? Yeah, so that's a great question, Zara. I think that what I can say from this is that there's hasn't been good studies to actually determine the threshold of BNP in pregnancy. So what we can use the BNP for is just a general trend, like the higher the number, the more likely they are to have peripartum cardiomyopathy. Absolutely. And now to diagnose a PE or DVT. Remember that clinical prediction rules such as Wells score are not validated in pregnancy. D-dimer will also be elevated in pregnancy and will not be a useful tool to rule out VTE. So for DVTs, we actually start with a compression ultrasound of the entire proximal venous system from iliac to popliteal vein, and Doppler examination of the external iliac vein must be included. Sometimes you may have to even repeat the ultrasound if the external iliacs are missing from the exam. If a DVT is present, proceed with treatment. If not, you can consider repeating the test in seven days. The sensitivity of a compression and Doppler ultrasound is 90.9% with a negative predictive value of 98.9%. When PE is suspected clinically, consider Doppler ultrasounds of the legs first. However, definitive diagnosis requires diagnostic imaging. Several factors should be considered in the choice of a VQ scan or a CT with a pulmonary uh, artery protocol. So these factors include uh, the maternal and fetal risks that are associated with the tests, sensitivities of the test, and their availability. Um, yes, pregnant women will ask about radi radiation risk of the baby for sure. For both VQ scan and CTA, the calculated radiation risk of the fetus is low, with levels well below the threshold of 50 milligray for subsequent childhood malignancy. The calculated minimum radiation dose to each breast for an average 60 kilogram women is 20 to 35 milligray from CTA and 0.28 milligray from VQ scans. There's some evidence to link these procedures with an increased risk of breast cancer. So to go over the diagnostic algorithm, the SOGC states that either a VQ scan or a CTPA can be used. Yet a VQ scan is actually the preferred imaging modality, and this is because of less radiation to the mother not the fetus, which is a common misconception. And the concern here is actually for breast cancer and radiation to the breasts for a mother. However, in many hospitals, a CT scan can be much faster to organize, and VQ scans may not be available overnight or on the weekends. 
We'll have to use our clinical judgment here based on what is readily available and how unwell our patient is. If a VQ scan is done and comes back with a high probability for PE, then we would proceed with treatment, of course. However, if it's non-diagnostic, we have two options. If our pretest probability is high, we can proceed with a CTPA. And if our pretest probability is low, then we can perform serial ultrasounds instead of the patient's lower extremities, and that might be enough to rule out DVT. Great, so let me summarize our fourth category here, which is diagnosis. If suspecting a DVT, order a compression and Doppler ultrasound. If strongly positive, begin treatment. If negative, yet suspicion is still high, repeat the test in seven days. Ensure that the pelvic vascular anatomy is definitely visualized in the examination. If suspecting a PE, you can do a Doppler ultrasound on the legs first. But if you're considering VQ versus CTPE, consider radiation risk to mom and baby, as well as the availability of the test. A VQ scan is preferred, and if diagnostic, begin treatment. If non-diagnostic, then consider serial leg ultrasounds or CTPE, depending on the pretest probability. Okay, thanks guys. So now our last category is treatment. It is important to distinguish the treatment options based on the different stages of pregnancy, antepartum, labor and delivery, and postpartum, with or without breastfeeding. Yeah, absolutely. When VT is confirmed, presumably in the antepartum period, we should begin treatment promptly. Vitamin K antagonists should not be considered for VTE in pregnancy because they can actually cross the placenta and therefore are teratogenic in the first trimester. There's no data on DOACs in pregnancy, so of course they should also be avoided as well. Unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin are safe. The dosing would be the same as any non-pregnant patient. It is important to track the patient's weight during pregnancy. As the patient's weight increases, so would their heparin dose. The treatment duration is three months or until six weeks postpartum, whichever one is longer. Now, navigating anticoagulation around labor and delivery is a bit tricky, especially if an epidural is involved. Assuming that these patients are on full therapeutic doses of anticoagulation, we typically recommend the last dose of low molecular weight heparin at least 24 hours prior to epidural insertion, if delivery is planned with an induction of labor or elective C-section, or at the onset of spontaneous labor. Reinitiation of these anticoagulants postpartum is dependent on many factors, including time of epidural removal and whether postpartum hemostasis is achieved, typically within four to 12 hours postpartum. Ensure that anesthesia and OB are aware and involved in the decision-making process as well. Now in the postpartum period, you can elect to continue the low molecular weight heparin. Alternatively, if a patient prefers to avoid injection medications and is postpartum and breastfeeding, you can switch to warfarin. If a patient is postpartum and prefers not to breastfeed, then DOACs are now fair game. In terms of postpartum counseling for future pregnancies, Given that she had a VTA during her pregnancy, she would definitely need VT prophylaxis both in the antepartum and postpartum period for her next pregnancy. But that's a whole other topic for discussion on its own. All right, guys, so to summarize our fifth category, which is treatment. So during pregnancy, low molecular weight heparin is a drug of choice. Definitely avoid warfarin and NOAX. Um, during labor and delivery, stop anticoagulation at least 24 hours prior to epidural insertion or at the onset of spontaneous labor. And postpartum, anticoagulation options expand to include NOACs if 
patient is not breastfeeding and warfarin if the patient is breastfeeding. Or we can continue with low molecular weight heparin. Remember that duration of therapy should either be three months or six weeks postpartum, whichever is longer. Okay, and I'm gonna take it back to our case again. So remember we had a 29-year-old Pimiparis female. It's, she's currently at 28 gestational age with dyspnea and leg, left leg swelling. In our case, we were suspicious of both left leg DVT and PE, so we opted to perform a left leg Doppler ultrasound first. Unfortunately, the ultrasound was negative for DVT, but they had poor views of the external iliac vein on the left side, given her gravid uterus. But because we had high suspicion for PE here, with sudden onset shortness of breath two days ago on the background of what sounds like typical physiologic dyspnea of pregnancy, we went ahead with a VQ scan. The VQ um, eventually confirmed high probability for PE. That was enough for us to start low molecular weight heparin, and her dose was 7,500 BID, given her weight of 75 kilograms. This dose was eventually increased to 8,000 BID with a third trimester weight gain. She went into spontaneous labor, and the low molecular weight heparin was held peripartum with epidural use. Postpartum, she elected to continue low molecular weight for another six weeks. Awesome, thanks Jess. So here are five pearls to take away. Number one, pregnancy itself is a risk factor for VTE, but keep a broad differential. Number two, in the diagnosis, the pelvic vasculature, especially on the left side, needs to be imaged with Doppler ultrasound. Number three, when treating VTE in pregnancy, don't forget to stop therapeutic anticoagulation as soon as the patient is in spontaneous labor for at least 24 hours prior to epidural placement. Number four, treatment should be three months and up to six weeks postpartum, whichever is longer. And lastly, number five, always keep the future pregnancies in mind when counseling. All right, guys, thank you so much for that excellent summary of VTE and pregnancy. Check out our website, theinternetwork.com, for a summary, infographic, and links to relevant guidelines. I think obstetric medicine is a fascinating and growing field, and I'm so glad that we had the chance to highlight this in our podcast. Thanks so much for recording with me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Clot Thickens, VTE in Pregnancy. This episode was written and recorded by Dr. Amanda and Jessica Wynn, General Internal Medicine. The internet series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was produced and recorded by Zara Morali. Music production by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. Attention, are you becoming a senior medical resident or SMR come July 1st, 2020? Well, the internet work is preparing a transition to SMR podcast to help out UPGY2s. From one resident to another, we're here to answer your questions. So please, as soon as possible, send your questions and concerns um, to our Twitter account at internetwork or by email at theinternetwork at gmail.com. Thank you. And we hope to see you again soon.